0: Hello and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day.
1: Hi Chris. Hi Peter. Steve Bradley is a freelance garden writer and broadcaster who holds the RHS Master of Horticulture Diploma and Master Degree in Education. Steve and his wife Val, also a qualified horticulturist, have worked for the Sun newspaper since 2002. Writing the gardening page and with the late and legendary Peter Seabrook, answering hundreds of readers questions every year. Over the years, Steve has also written for the most popular UK gardening magazines, including Amateur Gardening, RHS The Garden, BBC Gardeners World magazine and Garden Answers, to name just a few. Welcome, Steve, and where do we find you on this, this spring day?
2: Right, well, I'm, I'm actually in the office um, you know, we, we'd set up this meeting and um, I've just been doing some writing, basically waiting for your call. So it's busy, busy yet again, you know.
1: <laughs> Excellent. OK. Now, now, Steve, if I remember rightly, our paths first crossed. Uh, and I think it was at the, I think at the Chelsea Flower Show back in 1994. Gosh, that's such a long time ago, if, if memory serves me correctly.
2: Yes, I think. Were you working for a magazine at the
1: time? I was. I was working for yep. Amateur Gardening, which is obviously a magazine you are now very strongly connected with. So uh, yes, strange things happen in in, the, in our lives, don't they? Um, yeah,
2: we we also worked together on some of these um, gardeners' Question Time type panels, didn't we? We
1: did. That's oh, that's very true. Yes. Yeah, so we were out and about. Yeah. I think I remember one we did at. Uh, I think it's High Clear, which of course is AKA Downton Abbey. I remember that one; that was really, really nice. A really hot July yeah. or August day, probably one of the hottest days of the year. But uh, no, that's really good. And I think as well, um, when I was involved in garden ideas, you were very helpful at, uh, at one of the the flower shows, offering your your expertise. So yes, our, our paths have crossed many, many times, which is which is. Which is great. Yeah. Steve, can, can we probably start with perhaps your, your very first encounters with, with gardening and, and plants?
2: Um, well, my, my, um, my, my father worked in a factory, and so I think like a lot of people that work in industry, um, they probably appreciate the outdoors um, more than many other occupations. And so he took an allotment, mm-hmm. and I was um, dragooned into helping and um, I I used to complain about it when I wanted to play football, but um, I found that I actually quite enjoyed it, and it finished up with, um, as he got a a little bit older, I I finished up doing more and more on it, and then um, when I moved away to go to college, I think he probably gave it up a couple of years after that because my brother and sister weren't interested, so, um, you know, it was one of those things where, if you like, it just ran its course, but, yeah, it was, I suppose I was about, Ten, something like that, at the time, and um, yeah, quite. I became quite a um, bit of an expert at the time on veg, which um, I remember talking about these things at school and. Uh, you get some weird looks from the teachers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent, Steve. So um, just thinking about the vegetables you're growing, I, I'm a, a keen allotmenter uh, myself. I, I can't be, confess to having a decent allotment <laughs> it gets into quite a state, but I love growing vegetables, and sweet corns. sort of one of my favourites. Have you got any favourite vegetables that you used to grow when you were a child?
2: Um, not really, but the one now that I really like is these calettes, um, you know, they're, they're these things that... Um, but it's sort of kale on a Brussels sprout stem. They always remind me of blown Brussels sprouts. But um,
0: oh right, yeah,
2: yeah, and um, that's the thing that I quite like growing. It's a competition between myself and the wood pigeons. But, um, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah but, I have the same problem with my peas. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, that's the most popular one at the moment. Yeah,
0: brilliant, good stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, Steve. I'm- you mentioned about going to college there, so can you sort of take us on a bit of a journey on your, your career path into into gardening? Is there a, a rose nursery in Lincolnshire in, involved in this story?
2: Um, yes, the thing is that um, I, as well as um, helping my, my father on the, the allotment, mm. um, my mum actually worked for a small nursery and um, basically she got me a part-time job there, so school holidays and some weekends, this sort of thing. Um, I would help them. So they grew about 10,000 roses a year, which in the grand scale of things isn't many, but um, it did seem like it when you were looking along the length of the rose. Um, so I started off, even when I was at school, um, helping to grow commercially. And then once I left school, um, I wanted to be a footballer, but I was useless, so that wasn't a career path. Um, and um, they uh, they asked me if I wanted to work for them full time then they said that if I did they were going to send me to day release at uh, the local um, agricultural college which I wasn't that keen on I thought I've just escaped school I don't want to be going back there <laughs> um, anyway I, I agreed to that and so I did a couple of years at um, working for them and then I moved on, on to Pennell's Nursery which are you know, if you like the resident um, horticultural specialists. In lincolnshire and worked for them for a couple of years and then i decided that i would go to college full-time so i finished up going down to cannington for a year to do nch and much to my surprise i quite liked it and I, I was talking to some of the people there a chap called stuart brookfield who's no longer with us and he said you know why don't you do ndh and um you know what is what has now become the master of horticulture he was talking to me about it. And then, um, he actually, uh, I went back to Lincoln for a year to work on the parks department, which I must admit I didn't enjoy, but I was basically, I wanted some money before I went back to college. And, um, I applied to Pershaw because I don't know if you remember in those days, for the old NDH, you did an intermediate year. And if you passed that, you went on to do the finals. Mm -hmm. The, the reason I wanted to do some parks work was because I wanted to do the general section. I think at that stage, there were about three different sections. There was a commercial, an amenity, and a general. And um, I thought, well, I want to put in both camps just in case, so I'll do the general section. And you needed some parks experience, so I put up with the parks for a year. Then I went off to Pershore, and while I was there, um, I applied to Rittle to do the final. That was the only place in the country that did the final, but... Um, I found the Pershaw year quite scary, because when we got there, uh, there were 10 on the course, and I can't remember. What I can't remember is the right way round for the figures, so you'll have to bear with me. But they were telling us about the failure rate, and I thought, this is a good start, the first <laughs> week, you know. And oh dear. The thing I can't remember, there, uh, it was either 127 people took the exam and 33 passed, or 133 took the exam and 27 passed (laughs) and you know hearing that now looking around the room and i thought i don't know about the rest of you but i'm going to damn well make sure i'm one of the ones that gets through this and um got through it okay and then went on to Rittle to do um final ndh um the first it's just a one-year course it didn't work out too well because um i finished up failing the exam first time round and having to retake it. The main reason being that during that time, my father had a heart attack. So I was spending quite a bit of time um, shuttling between Essex and Lincolnshire. And so, you know, I'm afraid, you know, well, I'm not afraid. I'm proud of the fact that my studies took a bit of a backseat because I was more bothered about my father. Sure. So anyway, second time around, instead of failing, I, I was something like... 3% short of getting the Chittenden Award for the top student in the country. So it worked out all right in the end.
0: Brilliant. And when you were working in the Rose Nursery, were you sort of doing much grafting? And, I mean, commercial rose growing must be pretty intensive hard work, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. And the, uh, <laughs> the, the two chaps that I worked for, they were both about six foot four, I suppose. Right. And I finished... I finished up doing most of the budding because they said I was nearer to the ground than any of them. (laughs) (laughs) So um, yeah, I I quite, I quite enjoyed it, you know, and I just found that, um, you know, it it was one of those things where I also did a little bit of contract work for um, Wheat Crop Brothers. It was working a lot with um, contract budders coming over from particularly Germany. Mm -hmm. And I used to really suffer with cramp in my legs and they said, well, you're standing wrong. And they actually showed me a different, different stance. Whereas in the UK, you're taught to crouch, right. um, and bas- basically rest your forearms on your thighs. Whereas on the continent, they stand straight legged and bend from the waist. So you don't get the backache and you don't get the, the leg ache that you do when you're crouching. And, um, you know, I found that was a really useful tip, and once I got used to it, I certainly didn't have the aches and pains that I'd had before when I was using the original stance that I was first taught.
3: Excellent, and
0: I should imagine that stance made your back very strong as well, because sort of bending over like that and holding your back for hours well, on end must.
2: Well, the thing is, when you, when you're only a towering five foot seven, you haven't got much back to weight.
1: So <laughs> 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 Was there any other sort of stories from your your college years, Steve? Because obviously it it sounds like it was a bit of a a mixed bag as far as when you got to Rittle. Um, Any other sort of stories you can relate to us?
2: Yeah, I suppose one of the things, and it's probably related to what I've done in the future, is that um, I remember we had a trip down to East Morling. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, apparently they'd redone it, but at that time um, they'd actually got, well, basically it was a tunnel. And you went down underground into this tunnel, and there were wooden panels on the wall. Mm-hmm. And when they took these off, they got reinforced glass so that they could actually study the root movement. But they've got a plant up above. They've got to two rows of apple trees, one planted either side of this tunnel, mm-hmm. and then they dug the tunnel so that they could actually watch the roots develop. And it's a, the chap that was showing us round, he said, well, so far, he said, you know, people think that... Um, plants are dormant he said and actually they're not he said They're you know there's very rarely a time when there's no activity he said and we found here that the only time we couldn't detect any activity was unboxing day and he said we don't know whether that was a fault with the equipment or the eyesight of the people that had celebrated christmas <laughs> oh that's great oh, god yeah yeah <laughs> it's it, 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 Things well, like that ooh. that you always remember, of you know. Cu- of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I guess from college, I mean, it sounds like you learnt an awful lot, but how did that then translate into going to sort of freelance journalism?
2: Well, um, I, I spent quite a few years in education, and then wow. um, I, okay. I got I got to be the um, director of horticulture at Maryswood College, which was from my point of view, a disaster because I'd worked at Asken Bryan, yep. and then down at Rittle. I'd gone back to Rittle. They'd inv- headhunted me to go back to look after their nursery and mm-hmm. teach nursery practices. Right. And um, the thing is that then I, the chap that I shared an office with, he went down to Mary Swiller's vice principal and um, then he invited me to come down. They were restructuring their management and that caused an awful lot of resistance and a fair degree of uh, non-cooperation yeah. so that was quite interesting but uh, after i had been there about a year we got a new principal and uh, he was a chap that came over from kent and i knew him from before because he was a technician at pershaw when i was there as a student and it, it, i think the best way to put it politest way is to say we didn't get on
3: <laughs>
2: right. and um he i mean he was i thought he was useless as a technician I thought he was even more useless as a principal. <laughs> oh, and me being me, I mentioned this a couple of times. And of course, you know, that tends to lead to things like the sack or redundancy. <laughs> um, okay. in, in, in my case, it was redundancy. And the thing is that, all right, it's no satisfaction for me really. But 18 months later, I was proved right because um, he left in a hurry. I'd moved on to other things by then <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: good.
2: but while 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 I was at um Meris Wood, we had a production company come down called Two four Productions, and there's a chap called Neil Clemenson and another fellow David Edgar. Mm. They'd always used Q in the past for their their gardening programs and they wanted to use somewhere else, and they I don't know how they hit on Mary's Wood, but you know it's just straight down the a three from London, so I suppose it's nice and convenient yeah. and They wanted somebody, they were making a program called Plant Life. And so it got to the stage where part of my working day for a couple of weeks was helping them make this and uh, doing some presenting, which I quite liked. Didn't seem any different from lecturing, to be honest. And then when I got involved with that, um, they said, oh, there's a book to go with it. And I just thought, oh, okay. And then there's a... two two ladies working on this book, one Susan Berry, who I've done several books with, but also there's a lady called Anne Bonar, and she had to pull out because she got cancer, sadly, Um, and then they needed somebody else to help write the book, and really, that's how I got involved in writing. Complete fluke. Well, in both both instances, really, because, you know, it was one of those things where they happened to pick on the college that I was working at to make the program at, and um, they happened to need somebody somebody to help win the book so you know i dropped lucky twice so uh, much as i didn't enjoy my time at merriswood it worked out all right in the end as things mm. so far for me tend to have done
1: so back in the the 1990s uh steve obviously ground force um, was a was a force to be reckoned with on the on the tv be a huge popular bbc makeover program with obviously alan titchmarsh charlie Dimmock, and Uh, Tommy Walsh, and I believe you were involved in the the part work project with that. Um, I I do remember seeing that advertised on the TV, actually, at the the, the time. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please?
2: Yeah, sure. Mm. Well, for a start, before that, I'd I'd worked with the same production company, and we'd done um, Garden Doctors with Dan Pearson. Mm -hmm. So we'd done two programmes on that, and I'd written, well, I say I, my wife and I, I don't like saying we because it sounds like you're elevating yourself to the royalty but anyway um you know basically we, we worked on that and we did the um, the booklet for that and i suppose because we we're still with an agent um, and the thing is that when this ground force thing started we were contacted and then that's a funny thing just as an aside when you get tackled for work through an agency it, it's quite interesting because, you know, if you apply for, or audition for something, if you're successful, it's the production company that gets in touch and tells you that um, you've done okay and you're the one that want. And they say so we'll, we'll tell the agency. If you don't get it, they let the agency do the ter- dirty work and tell you that you failed. <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> oh. Oops. Anyway, back, anyway, back to ground force. Um, we were approached about doing the booklets and basically what happened was that the I think it started off with I think it was eight series for eight programs in the series for start and then it went gradually went down to six but anyway um, we were asked to do this booklet and then um, we sent in a couple of samples they'd sent us a what they call the rushes the um, the rough cut of one of the programs they liked what we had done and then they said Um, We're thinking of doing a book as well. Are you interested in that? (laughs) So we finished up doing a booklet for each series. And what they'd send the rushes, and we would write to those um, because obviously they wanted something that went out as soon as the series started because, you know, that's when they got the maximum sales. Mm -hmm. And with the the book, the first Ground Force book, um, Val and I wrote, and, you know, if you look on the cover of it, it, it says Alan Titchmarsh, but um, the agency said he didn't write it, so you're not going to say written by Alan Titchmarsh. And if you look on the inside, it says um, presented by Alan Titchmarsh, diagrams by Alan Titchmarsh, written by Steve Bradley. Uh, but but um, I have to do it undercover, and I found that over the years I can actually make more money pretending I'm somebody like Alan Titchmarsh <laughs> than, than I can. <laughs> Then I can then I can be in Steve Bradley, so I, I couldn't I couldn't care less. And neither could the bank manager, you
1: know. <laughs> Every cloud has a silver lining, Steve, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah,
3: brilliant.
0: Makes sense. And I, I guess working in you know, with television it must be totally different to sort of normal gardening. I mean, is it all? Uh, I mean, my my understanding is the filming side of things takes an incredibly long time, and where. In the garden, you just put it, sort of dig a hole, put your apple tree, and off you go. With television, it can sometimes take a little bit longer. Is that right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, we used to talk about, um, uh, when I worked with Dan Pearson, we used to talk about yo-yo plants, because quite often you'd plant something three times until, <laughs> and, 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 until the director was happy with it. But, of course, it, it had to look fresh each time, so you'd plant a, 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 a rosebush, for argument's sake, and he'd say, oh, no, you know, there's, a, there's something wrong with the sound or whatever. Um, we'll have to do it again. And, of course, you've got to move to another bit in the garden because it's got to look like you've started all over again. Of <laughs> so, you know, you'd finish up. Um, sometimes if there was a bit of a problem and you'd probably do four or five takes, mm-hmm. you know, it looked like somebody had got moles in the garden because <laughs> there were all these <laughs> piles of fresh soil everywhere. Um, but the other thing is, a lot of it it can be uh, quite cheaty in terms of, um, we went to a place in Norwich, right? and they've got this garden that was a real mess, and we put in a kid's sandpit and this sort of thing, um, and we left them a load of vegetable seeds. We got this as uh, a veg plot ready for them, and they, you know, when we went back to do the, the visits and see how things had gone and see how things had settled down, they'd done absolutely nothing. And so the thing that I remember about this is going, we've we got some laths of wood, the sort of thing that they, you sometimes see these builders putting up on the roof before they hang the tiles on,
3: mm-hmm. hey, yeah. so
2: these narrow narrow strips of wood. Um, and they said, oh, well, you know, we've got to have some veg. And um, i drew driven up on my own, so I, I said, look, um, you know, have a coffee break. I'm going to go to, down to the supermarket. So I went down to the supermarket and bought a dozen iceberg lettuces, (laughs) came back, we got some nails and we we hammered the nails through this uh, wooden lat so that the nails were protruding, we then buried the lat so that just the nails are visible and I was there unpacking these iceberg lettuces and poking them onto these nails. Uh, and anyway in the end they didn't use it after all that but it's oh. one of those things where um you know it's it one of the neatest rows of lettuce i've ever grown <laughs> fantastic that's brilliant <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, uh, Steve, that sort of takes us on to your, your books. You've written over, over 40 practical gardening books, I believe. Propagation Basics, which I know won the uh, the Garden Media Guild Award for the best practical book. Uh, the Pruner's Bible, Winter Gardening, The Fragrant Garden, What's Wrong With My Plant? And I believe The Grafter's Handbook. is That's one of your more recent projects. Am I right in thinking that? And um, if...
2: Yes, you're right. Um, I'll cover that in a minute, but if mm. we can go back to the uh, propagation basics. Mm -hmm. What you tend to find when you're working with a publisher is that you tend not to hear about anything until probably around about May time, usually about Chelsea Flower Show time. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they produce, apparently it's a a Belgian word called, uh, it's called a blad. And basically it's a sample of anything up to about 14 pages of what the original, the eventual book will look like. Uh And Basically, what they do is they say, well, you know, we're interested in a book on container gardening, for an example. Um, can you work up a blad for us? And it tends to be at a time when basically what they do, they palm this work off onto you so that they can clear off on holiday. And then the blads there when they come back, so that they can take to the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is in about October, I think. And then basically they they sell the idea and then the, we start working on the book. Mm. But with that particular one, um, they it was a real rush job. And we finished up, we booked a holiday down in France. Um, the Susan Berry that I mentioned, she'd got a cottage down there. And for a couple of years, um, we actually used to go down there for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, we went down on holiday and just just before we went... I said, oh, we're, well, you know, um, we, we're not going to bother with it, blad. We want this book. We know you talk propagation. Um, can you do it for us? So I had a word with Val, and we said, yeah, okay. And we actually wrote that book in in a fortnight while we were down in France. Our boys were quite young then, so they were going to bed quite early. And then we'd sit there, basically, me dictating to Val, well, she wrote everything down onto the laptop that we'd taken with us, and it was more or less regurgitating my notes that I'd used for years and years in different colleges. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, we did that in two weeks. Wow, gosh. Yeah. Mm. Now, moving, moving on to the Grafter's Handbook, mm-hmm. because I used to teach propagation, um, I was I used to like grafting right from the days when I, I was budding roses. And um, I got a copy of the Grafter's Handbook when I was at Cannington. It's probably antique value now. But... I got a copy of the book, and I thought I'm going to have a crack at this, and and um, I'm basically about two thirds of the way through the book in terms of trying all the different graphs, and then about five years ago, I think something like that, um, they said they wanted to do a rewrite of it, and I was approached about that, and I must admit it's it's one of the books I even know, it was basically regurgitating or rearranging somebody else's work, and. I, I finished up with um, J.R. Garner, the um, original author. Um, he, he's got two sons that are still alive. They're in the 90s, I believe. But um, they basically gave me the nod of approval. So I finished up redoing that book. And its um, I'm very proud of the fact that I actually got to write a version of it.
1: Well, that mm. sounds really good. Yeah, that must be a, a nice feeling, Steve.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And I guess, Steve, a lot of our listeners are possibly going to think about maybe trying grafting at some point. Are there any little tips or pointers you can give us that are likely to make the graft more successful?
2: Um, well, to be quite honest, it's basic woodwork. You know, the, the skill to grafting, I believe, it really is, um, especially bench grafting, where you're grafting indoors. Yeah, and that's something else about gardening that's always fascinated me. You know, you've got bench grafting and field grafting. Why can't they just call it indoor grafting and outdoor grafting? I'll never know. (laughs) But anyway, that's the way gardening is. Um, Basically practice. A lot of it is just basic woodwork. Getting competent with a a knife. And, um, you know, once you've done that, um, you know, you can actually plant root stocks, whether it's rose root stocks, apple root stocks or whatever. Um, You don't need to graft indoors. You can graft outside. There are several decent books about it. One of them I've mentioned where um, they give you all the tips and hints. But, um, you know, it's something that you can try and try quite easily. But I think if you want to try something where you can get quick results, try some of this uh, tomato grafting. You know, we've got, I mean, you're probably selling them anytime soon, these grafted veg plants.
0: What, tomatoes.
2: Well, I, I've not tried it on potatoes, but you can actually get tomato rootstocks that oh, are, right. um, well, basically what it is, they've been bred so that they're resistant to a lot of the soil-borne pests and diseases. Right. You know, yeah. This idea of gr- growing in the uh, the greenhouse border soil, and you've got to change it every year, every couple of years. Um, yeah. If you use these resistant rootstocks, you don't need to keep changing the soil, and you can graft onto that um, the variety that you want, whether it's Moneymaker or Roma or whatever else. Um, you can graft your own... Um, preferred varieties onto them. Um, Once they've taken, then you can plant them out in the border and you'll get a decent crop. In Mm. fact, the bigger of the rootstocks, you can get away with one grafted plant instead of three seed-grown plants. It's amazing how productive they are.
1: Mm. Mm. Because I think I'm right in saying, um, Steve, I think 90% of the tomatoes we eat are from grafted tomatoes commercially. Would that be...
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, again, it's a a bit of a difference, Chris, because what basically, you know, even when I was at Cannington, because I was um, playing around with the grafter's handbook, they let me do some uh, grafting for their tomatoes there, which was a different technique to the one that they use now. That was an approach graft where you grafted the variety onto the side of the rootstock. Mm -hmm. Now it's what is called an apical graft where you chop the top off the rootstock, the roots off the variety, and then you join the two together. But it's one of those things where in the UK, we still grow a lot in this rock wool and use this what is called a nutrient film technique where it's basically um, a chemical solution of fertilizers flowing through pipes uh, with the, the tomato plant roots in the pipes. So they get fed as the water flows around, whereas on the continent, uh, they still, a lot of them still grow in soil. So the grafting has been much more popular over there than it's been in the UK.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. And are softwood cuttings, the take on them is just as good as with hardwood cuttings? Because, I mean, I've always sort of seen roses and apple trees and things like that and thought, oh, you're dealing with sort of good solid lumps of wood. It can't be that hard. But softwood cutting, are they even called softwood cuttings, I suppose, when you're dealing well, with a tomato? Yeah, I mean, uh,
2: well, with, the, with tomatoes, you can uh, grow them from cuttings. But, of course, um you know the, the rootstocks are seed raised and so are the varieties. And um, as I say, you just chop the top off one and the bottom off the other. And you can buy these little, they call them grafting clips. Um, and they're basically just tubes. And you, mm. it, you chop the top off the rootstock and then you slide this tube on about halfway. And then you chop the roots off the variety. And then you just basically post um, the stem of the uh, tomato variety down the tube so that the two touch, and then if you can keep them in a warm, humid environment, um, they will usually fuse together, then you can remove the clip, and um, you know it's a bit like buying any rose or apple tree, suddenly oh. you've got um, two plants um, that look like one.
0: Brilliant, I'll have to look into this a bit more, sounds yeah. very exciting, thank you.
2: Well, certainly you need to, as I say, a lot of it is all about woodwork, yep. um, all right this t- tissue is quite soft but it's the environment that's important in terms of um, you need high humidity very high humidity and warm so you know you need to de- you- if you've got a decent propagator you can graft and grow on tomatoes no problem at all
1: Thanks Steve that's really interesting um so next to the the sun newspaper and working with the the legendary uh peter seabrook obviously his loss was felt across the whole horticultural industry uh, last year planning and writing though a, a weekly gardening column for the sun steve must be a bit, bit daunting at times how do you do you cope with it
2: um well you know be- because there are two of us working on it it's not as daunting as it could be in fact it was <laughs> it's quite funny how we we got to do this because um I was doing a photo shoot at, at Cable Manor College uh, over in Enfield, mm-hmm. and I'll always remember the day because it was the day of the 9/11 attacks on the Twin Towers. And we, we just stopped for a coffee, and I knew Peter Seabook was around, and he came over and he said, uh, "Could I have a word?" And he always used to call me young man. He's getting a bit late for that now, but he always used to call me young. Oh, or he always used to call me young man, and he said. Um, would you be interested with you and your wife uh, working with me? He said, um, I'm thinking of retiring. He said, and I don't want the column to go to some Fly by night TV presenter. Um, I won't mention any names, but you won't have to guess very far. Um, <laughs> he, he was, he was never Monty's biggest fan. Um, but, <laughs> um, and it really started from there. And of course, there was a bit of a delay because, you know, he, Tuesday was always the day to go into the office, and this happened to be a Tuesday, and he said he was going in there next. And then he got a phone call, as everybody on the campus, their phones started ringing, and, of course, the news was coming out about what had happened at the Twin Towers. And um, he said, well, he said, don't forget what I've said. He said, there might not be a bit of movement, he said, for a bit. He said, I- I'm not thinking of um, going into the paper today. He said, I think they'll probably have their minds on other things, mm. um, and gardening will take a back seat. So it was a few months before we were formally approached. But the, the rub about that is that um, he said he was thinking of retiring and we were going there with a view to gradually taking over. What he didn't tell us was, was it was a 20-year apprenticeship. <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. it, you know, uh, I, I, I still miss him a lot. no two ways about that. But um, it was one of those situations where, even when he died, he was still thinking about retiring. Mm-hmm. You know, He's yeah, he yeah, not right made so. the decision. <laughs> I don't think he ever would have done, to be honest. No. And I, think, I think after about five years, we realized that, um, you know, we were going to be apprentices for life. And so <laughs> and um, we only got to do the lead while Peter was still with us. We only got to do the lead about three times. Once it was when, you remember when there was all this uh, problem with impatiens and um, the you know, there were. They uh, you know, were getting this mildew and mm. this sort of thing, and I got in touch with somebody over at Paul Colgrave, who I knew quite well, and said, "Well, what are the alternatives if you can't use impatiens?" And we um, we basically we we wrote an article about that, and we you were know, lucky enough we got a picture of we've been up to the Southport Flower Show, and I must admit, while you're there, you don't tell anybody you work for the Sun because it's too close to Liverpool, yeah. and. and it's one of those things where we'd actually take. There was a small pub on the um, the seafront, and we thought about going in, and it was it, there must have been a dozen people in there, and it was packed. But they got loads of seating outside, and whoever actually ran the pub was obviously interested in gardening because it was absolutely bedecked with hanging baskets and troughs and pots. And Val had taken a couple of photographs of this, and, of course, this finished up being the photograph to go on with with this lead because it just so happened. There were no busy lizzies in the, this picture at all, oh. so he dropped lucky for us that way. But, um, yeah, we got so much praise for that. I don't think he wanted us to take the lead ever again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Brilliant.
0: And, obviously, Pete's uh, always in the news at the moment, and it sounds like very recently, the last few weeks there's been some big developments on dates and deadlines and you know, yeah, so what's yeah. happening and peter you know, was obviously a great ambassador for the benefits of peat and using it in our industry um have you had much personal experience of the new peat free composts
2: um sadly, sadly yes um, you know, um, <laughs> oh um, well for a start you know the post bag, well I say the post bag the thing that's changed over the 20 odd years is the fact that we get more and more emails now and less and less uh, snail mail
3: Yep. Mm-hmm.
2: but um, we're still getting a lot of people complaining about the experiences for the last two years and we're into the third year of doing it now, we've done trials we picked six peat free composts and we Trial them for um, amateur gardening, and then we send in an article along with the, the photographs of, that have been taken. And um, I've I've been told that one or two companies have reckon they've just about cracked it. But yeah. um, so far, I think um, you know, if you grow plants in rubbish, you get rubbish plants. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm not I, I'm not a I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, peat free. Um, and this is one of the few things where Peter Seabrook and I disagree because he'd worked for, I think it was the Fison's when they used to sell peat. Yep. And he'd basically been a peat salesman. So, you know, um, it, was it. Always throw, it, it was always thrown at yep. him that, you know, oh, well, you know, you used to sell peat so you're, you're always going to back it. I reckon that what we should have been doing all the time as an industry, and it's the approach I've always taken, is that, we should have been showing people how bad these alternatives are because I think, you know, it's better than let the devil you know. It's all right singing the the praises of Pete. Everybody's got used to Pete. And then, you know, what annoys me is that um, we're trying all these different recipes. Um, Quite often they change every year. Um, And it really irritates me that an awful, in fact, I've just done an an article that's going to go into the amateur gardening uh, about the end of April, where I've said that, you know, you've got all these um, non-government organisations been screaming away about um, getting rid of peat. And basically what they did, particularly the wildlife trusts, and they actually had proformas made so that their members could fill them in and send them. And when the government did a survey, there were about 5,500 replies, just about all of them on these proformas. So you finish up with 5,500 people dictating to, uh, I don't know how many million gardeners there are in the UK, But, um, you know, I mean, it's how many (laughs) many decimal points back do you want to go to look at the people who have actually got their own way? And the other thing that irritates me is that they've spent all this time screaming about you should get rid of peat. None of them have put their hands in the pocket to actually help finance this. You know, it's all been done by the the, um, peat-producing companies. And um, I, I just think we've gone too far too fast. Yep. We should be at 50, 50%, 40% peat, and the rest with the different additives. And I think it's going to come back to biters.
0: Well, I yeah. certainly think the next few years are going to be very interesting with regards to <laughs> what the general public can actually get their hands on. Because by the sound of it, the actual growers are going to get a little bit longer to still be able to grow their sort of plants in peat plugs. And obviously, but us. Us yeah. Amateurs, we're going to have to go with the peat-free stuff. Yeah. Grim
1: and bear it, as they yeah. say. Yeah, and it's interesting. Well, yeah, I was going to say, Steve, it's interesting. I, I went over to the Netherlands a few weeks ago, and we—I we, was chatting to one of their one of their garden center people, and they were saying that the Dutch, uh, like a lot of the European growers, have no interest in going peat-free whatsoever. Uh, they're just watching what we do in the UK. Um, probably quite interestingly watching. How, how, it, how it sort of pans out. But I think at the end of the day, we, we as you say, we are in a very difficult situation now that uh, we need a a product which is predictably good, and that's the problem. It's just predictably not so good for, for a lot of people and how they well, yeah. manage it.
2: Yeah, and the thing is uh, as well, though, Chris, what do you use? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. all right, a lot of people are using wood fibre. Well, that's okay until the building industry picks up and then they want to make boards out of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be able to pay a higher price than our industry can afford. So then you've got to switch to something else. Mm-hmm. Then when that goes up in price, I mean, I saw the same thing happen with the shredded bark. Um, at one stage, the Forestry Commission used to chuck it, just leave it in heaps, chuck mm-hmm. it away. Yeah, and it was then, a waste and then when it, Yeah, and when it, when it became popular, mm-hmm. um, they started charging for it and the price went up and up. The same sort of thing is happening with coir. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, well, I could go on about this for the next couple of days, as you probably realise. Uh, <laughs> You're passionate. Um, uh, rec- recently, I was uh, I was doing a broadcast for Radio Kent, and we had somebody on from the Wildlife Trust, and I've really got it in for them. Um, and this, they were doing some sort of survey, and they'd got this lady on, and she's and um, the the main presenter, Andy Garland, said, um, "Are you going to do the bird survey?" I said, "No, and I'm not doing anything to support the Wildlife Trust." And, of course, this woman said, oh, why not? You must, you must. I said, well, um, you've interfered in my industry, working all you can to get rid of peat." I said, why should I support you? I said, what I do now, when anybody writes to me and complains about um, you know, what's happening with peat Pre-Compost, I said, I've got a list of all the people, all the NGOs like you, who've actually um, backed the banning of Pete. I said, no, just write back. And at the bottom of the letter, I put this list and say, If you subscribe to any of these organizations, it is worthwhile remembering that they've actually been working against your interest for the last few years as a gardener. And she said, oh, I think that's unfair. And I just thought, I don't care what you think. (laughs) But, you know, I think I think to a certain extent, the industry was sleepwalking into this situation. We could have done more. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter didn't really get the backing that I feel he deserved. Um. And I'm just hoping that eventually we'll see sense and we'll go back to park peat um composts, but we'll see how it goes yeah, so let's just hope the, the um the manufacturers
1: you know can work on some better formulas in the future as well um Steve, you were mentioning about obviously working on your your local radio um. Any experience? I, it's always interesting when you you're sat behind a microphone and you you get a question down your, your headphones, um, not knowing what the, the question is going to be. Uh, any interesting stories you can you can relate to?
2: <laughs> oh, oh, oh yes. <laughs> well, for, for for a start, when I first started teaching, Ask and asking Brian, uh, the head of department, took me to one side and he said, "Look, um, if they ask you something and you don't know, say you don't know." He said because if you try bluffing it and they find out you're wrong he said the big problem is it will get passed down from generation to generation of students you'd have to live with it for the rest of your life mm. and i've carried the same philosophy through into the radio if somebody asked me about a plant i'll just say look i'm sorry i've never heard of it um but um as regards to- <laughs> what's quite interesting is that you start the broadcast i'm going to be doing one this sunday morning and you you start the broadcast and um all right you- it's a four-hour broadcast which sounds like a long time but if you bear in mind it's radio kent so you get all the um travel down to dover and the the strikes of the um air traffic controllers and all the rest of it so that takes out a bit of time as well as um, things like the news and the weather um and the traffic issues so it's, it's probably about maybe three hours three and a half at the most but um somebody will phone in about something and then without realizing when you're about halfway through, you realize that that has probably become the theme of that day's program. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) remember a few years back, um, there's a lady, she phoned up and um, she said, you know, I um, I forget what I kind of remember what she wanted to know about. And I started to talk. And reply to a query, and her dog started barking, mm-hmm. and um, so I stopped. And then, at some point, I said, um, "You're going to feed that dog." And she she said, "Oh," she said, "Oh, he's been fed." She said, um, "He always barks when you're on. He doesn't like your voice." <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> so, I, so I, I just said you know you're not going to make it big when even the dogs can't stand you.
3: <laughs>
2: and then we were getting people phoning up after that and they'd start off with, woof, woof, I've got a question about apple trees.
3: <laughs> mm, yeah,
2: no, that's good. And, and, then, and then another time, there was a lady, again, it was a lady, she phoned up and um, she asked me a question and I started to reply and she was talking over me. So I stopped she stopped so I started to reply and she started talking over me again and this happened for a a minute or so and I just said "Uh, look just let me make a point here I said the art of conversation is that we take it in turns and she said yeah yeah okay and I said I started replying to her and she started it again and I said look why why can't you you listen when I speak and there's a voice in the background i assume was the husband and he, he said i know what it's like mate i can't get a word in <laughs> <laughs> so this lady just said shut up you <laughs> Great, and man. from that that was in the first hour and from then on everybody else um they asked me a question and then as they finished on i'll just shut up with you and <laughs> it just it just went all the way through and um I I like shows like that because you spend most of the time laughing rather than actually... It doesn't seem like you're working at all.
0: I think that's it. I mean, we've certainly been really enjoying doing this show. Mm. It's always interesting speaking to people about their passions and loves, but equally the humour that you get out of people is just enlightening and it makes you smile at the end of the day, which I think is great. Most Mm.
2: definitely. Yes, we need more of that, don't we, these days? Yes, Well, uh, I I, I do think, though, with gardening, you've got basically the ones like yourselves that have been trained and experienced in the industry, and then you've got what I call the newcomers. I tend to find that um, the the established gardeners, regardless of what your qualifications are, they seem to be quite generous. I do find that a lot of these uh, TV types that have come in, for a start, it irritates me that they call themselves a gardening expert after two programmes. But also... um, They don't seem to have the generosity that's inbuilt into most natural gardeners. And I I do find that quite interesting. I, I know one or two of them that I've met, got on with fine, but they don't want the public anywhere near them. They won't answer any questions. I've sat on panels with some of them, and basically they just sit there and point at me. And I just think... There's something wrong here. You're getting paid ten times when I'm getting paid, and I'm doing all the
0: damn work. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah. But isn't that the thing with gardening? It is all about sharing knowledge. And like you're down the allotment, and you're talking to your neighbour, and like they're growing a courgette, and you're growing a courgette, and you discuss the flavours and which ones have done well. And I think that's one of the lovely things about it, isn't it? And same with the NGS scheme, isn't it? I mean, that's all about showing off your yeah. what you're proud of and talking to people yeah. about it, it's lovely. I, I
1: always think, Steve as well, it's all about, and uh, Peter here I think it's all about sort of having a natter over the garden fence, isn't it? Having yeah. that conversation which we do less of, you know, it's all social media now and, you know you, you know, people getting to know their neighbours I think, I think I saw yeah. some research, that doesn't seem to happen, but usually the garden is the common bond, that's what brings you together, whether it's a problem with a hedge or a bamboo which is to infiltrate your neighbour's garden, there has to be a, a common common theme so let gardening be that hopefully it'll bring a bit of a uh, bit of sanity to our world
2: yeah but you see i think the key point is that you can't share the knowledge if you don't have it
1: true yeah
2: i mean the other thing is that um this, this sharing andy garland the chap that i work with from kent he, he's moved house now but he used to have an allotment in seven oaks and i, I was asked to go over there once Myself, and because I alternate with somebody else. and um, We do weeks about. And we were asked to go over there and basically um, judge the allotments for them. And I naively thought I was going over there to um, judge the plants. So when I got over there, I found out, and this is probably a reflection of the way that I used to dress when I went into the studio, um, I was judging the scarecrow competition. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No. So, I, I I judged this, but one of the funniest things was that I walked, they'd got like a, a row of uh, little sheds, and a couple of taps, and you weren't allowed to use hosepipes, you had to run about with cans. Yeah. I walked past these sheds, and I saw this scarecrow, and I did a double take, because there was two ladies that got this um, plot, and they were sharing it. In fact, it was a half plot that they were sharing, and... The Scarecrow they'd made, it was um, basically an effigy of a woman. They'd used pairs of tights to make this um, caricature, but all she was wearing was a fig leaf. So basically, it was a, a nude with a, a <laughs> with, with, a, with a fig leaf holding a hoe.
3: Okay. And um,
2: I, I, I took a photograph of this. I thought it was brilliant. Didn't win. I think it came about third. But anyway, that was the only time that a, um, a nude has ever appeared on the gardening gardening page in the Sun. Because I took, I, I took it in to show them, and they said, "That's the lead for this week."
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but the, the other thing about it was that they'd got one greenhouse. And and all he did got in was these 40-gallon drums, whatever size they are, and whoever arrived first would fill these drums with cold water. And then as people arrived, I noticed that we're all going over to this shed, uh, this this greenhouse, and um, then coming out again, only stopping for a minute, and then coming out again. And when we finished doing the judging, Andy Garland said, oh, well, um, come on, let's go for a beer. And I thought we're going to go off to the pub. So... We went up to this greenhouse, and uh, for a start, it had got a big sign outside, probably a couple of feet across, and it was uh, somebody was obviously a, one of the allotment holders or somebody they knew was quite a good artist because it was it was called the King Edward after the potato. Yeah. Mm. And instead, of a, instead of a king's head, it was a potato. Mm. But Andy went inside, and he, he put his hand in these barrels, and what they did... Apparently, um, there was a there used to be a, a pub just off from the allotments, just down the road, where they used to go and um, basically have a beer. And if you've got loads of carrots, you'd swap with somebody's courgettes or whatever. And that all stopped at the pub uh, simply because you know the pub closed. So what they did, they got this redundant greenhouse, they did it up, they put these barrels in. They used to bring the beers, tins or bottles, and drop them in there. And there was a bit outside of it, uh, sort of, I don't know, maybe seven or eight square yards. Mm. Um, It was neatly mown and they'd turn up and then they'd, um, there'd be trugs or um, polythene bags, this sort of thing, with potatoes in or carrots or whatever. And it was a bit like, I, I mean, I've never been to anywhere like Africa, but it's a bit like you see these pictures of bazaars. You know they've got all these things out. There was all this trading going on. You know, it was all the you got this image of, um, you know, I'll I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll bid you three courgettes for a dozen carrots, sort of thing. Yeah. And what, um, yeah. they they'd, they'd all stand there and have a beer and basically divide this stuff up because whoever had got a surplus had probably had a failure with something else. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so you know and they could all go home and claim as one of them said he said we can all go home and say what perfect gardeners we are because we've got such a wide range of stuff <laughs> yeah that's good that's... <laughs> and i just thought it was a brilliant approach you know
0: <laughs> and i i guess with your work as a journalist and sort of having been in our industry for so long steve you've seen a fair few of the flower shows and the uh, Chelsea flower shows and those types of uh, events. Have you got any favourite flower shows that you like attending, or any stories from those flower shows that you'd like to share with us?
2: Well, the um, the the one that I think is the best show at uh, at the moment is the um, the Harrogate Spring Flower Show. Mm. And all right, it's not far from it's not far from where we live. But even when I lived down in Guildford, we used to come up for the Harrogate Spring Show. Okay, we. Sometimes go to Southport, but um, we have to wear our amateur gardening hat because we'd probably get lynched if we said we're from the sun because there's still a lot of ill-feeling over the uh, Hillsborough disaster. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I don't think it'll ever... Well, maybe in generations to come, uh, the attitude will change, but it's still quite strong at the moment. Yeah. But what I find interesting is the way shows are changing. You know, to me... um, the Chelsea Flower Show is not the, the It's not a flower show anymore. It's a garden design show. Yeah. But when I work there, you know, in various guises, I'll always say, "Look, I'll do the." I still call it the marquee, even though it's now the Grand Pavilion. Mm. And you know, I say, "Look," when I, I used to work for a, t- a production company, myself and um, Alan Titchmarsh, and he'd do the outside, and I would do the inside. And what was interesting about that was, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> What was interesting about that was that quite often I'd do some of the stuff, uh, a lot of the stuff inside and be talking to people there or just describing the scene. And then they used to take um, the tapes down to a place near Winchester, which is not far from where Alan lives. And quite often when he'd done his stint at Chelsea, he'd go down there and often they'd play to him some of the stuff that I'd said. And basically he would repeat it because he would do a voiceover for it using pretty well and it, it was quite interesting because you'd watch they, they used to do it as a first of all a video and then they, they went on to doing a CD and quite often I'd watch it and see something and then I'd hear my words spoken by Alan Titchmarsh <laughs> <laughs> that was quite eerie but I've got no time for the gardens I don't think they're a real reflection I also think that um, garden designers are overplayed do think there should be, and I always try to do it when I work there for the radio, I like to get there on the Sunday, the um, landscapers, and many of them are ex-students, the landscapers, they're just finishing off so they start to relax a bit, and I like to interview them and find out what their difficulties were, how easy it was to put together, a lot of them, the ones that their old hands, and quite often, most of it's been mocked up in the yard somewhere yep. before it's brought, brought onto site and this sort of thing. And the ones that I really like, there are one or two, Dan Pearson's one, Roger Platt's from over in um, Kent, Mark Gregory. They've got this skill, they can build a garden, and even as they're walking off, just sweeping the paths as they walk off, it looks like it's been there for ages. And that's something that only a certain number of garden designers have got. And sadly, a lot of them haven't, because when it's judged, it still looks like it's just been done. So there's, there's that side of it that I find interesting. But no, I think we need more flower shows and less garden design shows, but they all seem to be shifting that way, sadly. And I suppose some of it's my fault for working on ground force.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. we've got a local one to us, Blenheim Flower Show. Mm-hmm. Have you been to that one yet, Steve?
2: Yes, but it's, it's many years ago now.
0: Okay, because that's really sort of Starting to take off, I'll say now. It, it, it's they've been plugging it for a good few years now, and yeah, it's, it's very
1: and it's very planty. It's got a, a good plant sort of centre to it, which is
2: which is yeah. good. Yeah. Um, well, Val um, and I used to there's a yeah, a company that do three garden shows. So one's at Pearl Place down in Sussex, and uh, then they do one in Hampshire and uh, Stansted House, and then they do one up at the big uh, the, the big place just outside Guildford, Lowsley okay and we used we used to we used to go there um three day shows and we used to go there uh, doing garden advice we called ourselves the gardening doctors and it's a bit like any other form of consultancy when we first started it you know there were queues outside the tent then it started to be more and more of the regulars coming back and then in the end i mean it was coming to a natural end before we moved house because you know it's like any other form of consultancy if you solve people's problems have got no reason to come and see you anymore it's true <laughs> and, and so we were get to the stage where we were getting less and less busy over the years and you're right you sometimes see people that come and say oh hello you're here again and how's it going and off they go but you know once you've solved the gardening problems they're more interested in buying plants and they are talking to you Yeah. so yeah. you know think i always think you know with, if you're going to do any form of consultancy, you've always got to have your eye on the next job rather than the one you're doing.
1: Yeah, that's very that's, true. Yeah, indeed. Especially if you're freelance, and that actually brings me nicely on to the next question, uh, Steve. Bringing things up to date, uh, yourself and, and and your wife, I'll do a, a fair amount of consumer testing now for Amateur Gardening Magazine. Um, what does this all involve? Do you normally carry out the tests, and and on what lessons have you gleaned from doing them? Do you do Do you do them in your own garden?
2: Um, we. We do them in our own garden, and we've got um, a widow uh, one side of us. We help her with her garden. You know, part of the agreement is that if we've got a couple of mowers to test so that we can change the background, we'll test. You know, If we've got four to test, we'll do two in her garden and two in ours. Mm-hmm. And it's now got to the stage where the neighbours are starting to hear about this, so uh, we're not really short of locations, <laughs> providing the lot. If, if it's something like pruning your roses... Or mowing your lawn or edging your lawn, um, we become very, very popular.
0: I bet you do. I think I might come and buy a house next to you, Steve. Sounds like a, you're a great neighbour to have.
3: That's brilliant.
2: But, uh, I mean, the other, the other thing is, and it gets to be a bit of a problem, not that I should complain about it really, but quite often what happens is that you'll get companies will send you a mower and they will say, well, look, you know, it's not worth us having it back once it's been used you want to give it to the local school or some sort of charity? And, you know, it's one of those things now where the local... uh, I'm a member of the local gardening club, mainly because I'm a five-minute walk away. So if somebody lets them down, my phone rings Mm. with about 20 minutes' notice. But also, they've got some excellent raffle prizes that we've given them over the years because (laughs) people just don't want this kit back. So, you know, what do you do with 40 rakes?
1: Indeed. Indeed yeah
2: done, you know, i it. suppose <laughs> we could try selling them on ebay but uh, to be quite honest the only thing that i see wrong with that is that we're doing people like yourselves out of the job
0: mm. yeah well it's nice to give things away and yeah. if you the way we always look at those sorts of things if you make some donations for charity by doing it or you know, bettering someone who's in slightly less fortunate position than we are then you've done a good thing good deed, haven't yeah you? good
2: deed yes well certainly the local cricket club they're um their cricket square is actually mown by one of them one of the mowers that we tested about three years ago something like that but really good stuff you know i suppose if it was a county to, uh, a county uh, side you know i'd expect free entry but um everybody can just stand and watch if they want so there's there's no benefit really apart from <laughs> the, the feel-good factor you know
1: yeah that's good to do
2: the next thing we're gonna try um because we've got a a lawn that um, closer resembles a hanging basket factory because of the amount of moss that's in it. Um, one of the next things we're going to try is um, a whole range of different uh, moss killers. Okay. Uh, so it's going to look a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a mess for a time, but um, yeah, it, it, you know, we enjoy doing it, mm. and it's nice to get the feedback from people. I, oh, you know, I was thinking of buying a chainsaw and um, you've recommended one of these battery ones rather than a smelly petrol-driven one, this sort of thing. I always read Amateur Gardening every week, and I, I read it mainly for the um, the consumer tests that you're doing, which, you know, it's nice to know that um, people actually look at the page rather than skim past it. <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Good stuff. And I guess you've obviously tried a lot of bits of kit. You've uh, grown, I'm imagining, quite a few different plants. What's the... Sort of best piece of gardening advice you could give to our listeners to someone maybe just starting out with a new garden
2: be patient yeah always be patient um quite often i again mostly with the radio we get people saying look i've just moved into this garden i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and I, I always say wait a year yeah. yeah i i once had the experience of digging up a plant and chucking it away and i bought a replacement and because this is the winter time. I didn't know what this plant was. Um, I bought a replacement. Then one of the neighbours said, oh, what are you doing? You've just dug one of those up. to chuck it away. <laughs> so, 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 you know, and the thing is, I'm supposed to know what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> so, was it a deciduous but, plant? Have you got that um, as an excuse? Yeah, yes, it, it was. There, there <laughs> were, no,
2: there there were, there were no, no leaves on it. It was just twigs. Yeah. But, it's, you know, I always think, wait for a year, then you see what bulbs you've got. What herbaceous perennials you've got, especially if you're moving during the winter, and then let everything grow for a year. See what you like, see what you don't like, and then you start swinging the spade. But, um, you know, patience, you know, it's the same. I remember when I used to teach inside the propagation house, the worst thing a cutting could do is be placed in a tray on a corner of the first bench in the greenhouse Mm -hmm. because that's what we call the yo-yo cutting because any, anybody that went in, oh, they're the, the raising cuttings in here. I wonder how they're doing them. The one right on the corner by the label always got picked up to have a look, see if it got any roots, and then shoved back again. And of course, it, you know, it didn't have a snowball's chance of rooting because it was spent most of the time in and out of the compost. So again, you know, it's hmm. the same with sowing seeds. You know, The number of times I've heard about people are, well, I, I sow some seeds and after, after a week, I dug them up to see if it started to germinate. And I just think, be patient, be patient.
1: <laughs> Quite agree. <laughs> definitely, definitely, Steve, yeah. Um, Steve, do you have any upcoming projects uh, you'd like to sort of mention and tell us about?
2: Well, nothing book-wise. You know, we're fully committed to carrying on working for the Sun, unless you've heard something I haven't. We, we seem to be doing more and more for <laughs> amateur gardening. Mm. We're also doing more and more our, our eldest son runs a website for us and it's called sungardening.co.uk. The the son weren't interested in basically internet gardening when we started working for them. So mm. we registered the name with their permission. It's nothing to do with the Sun, apart from the title and they just leave us to get on with it. Quite often Chris will tell us, he said, oh, we've been checked up recently to see what we're doing on the site. And they, they just take a glance probably about once a month and they just leave us to get on with it sometimes we do small videos on there often i will answer questions to camera and quite often those we don't use people's names but quite often we will actually pick out questions that have been written in or emailed in and we'll actually answer those and they go out on the internet we've got some of peter stebrook's work on there from years ago videos that he did but what i what i find interesting now is that especially the letters. Um, I don't know whether it's the cost of postage or what, but you used to get a, a letter or a postcard with one question. Now you can get four or five. Mm-hmm. You know, they certainly get their money's worth out of the stamp. <laughs> <laughs> but the only dilemma for us is you, you, you can't keep writing and saying Mrs. Smith has asked this, Mrs. Smith wants to know about that, Mrs. Smith wants us to identify whatever... And so quite often we have to use probably a made-up name but a real location you know if, if Mrs Smith's in Wrexham you'll find that over six month period there might be several questions from Wrexham they're all from Mrs Smith but uh, we have to use a different name yeah. um, you know otherwise it sounds like you know there's lots of Smiths in Wrexham it, 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 it sounds like you Mrs Smith's page in the paper you know yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Smith,
1: the stalker. That,
2: that doesn't happen very often, but we have to do it now and again. Yeah. It's a really good and interesting yeah. question. We make sure we can get it in somehow. For sure,
0: brilliant. Yeah, good stuff. It. And Steve, you've obviously talked about your wife a fair bit. She's a a busy, qualified horticulturalist, and obviously, I guess, do you do you guys work together when you're planning your sort of gardening and your layout of the beds? So, I mean, who does the digging and who does the putting the plants where they're going to be planted?
2: Well, all of the aspects outside and what we do, the media basically is me doing as I'm told. Excellent. Okay.
0: I, I find that's the easiest way. So it causes a lot less arguments, that's doesn't it? It's
1: diplomatic answer, I would say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I don't think there are many relationships where you get truly equal partners, that, nope. you know, Certain roles one will dominate, and in other roles another one will dominate. And you know, I just think it's accepting your 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 place in society, if you like. I mean, quite often with a, you know, we've got things like we had a when we moved here, we had a couple of um, large trees, both diseased. The irony is that we moved from just outside Guildford because right. the the basically next door, but one they've got honey fungus, and it then spread into the next door neighbours. And we said we'd better move before it gets gets to us. <laughs> We've moved into a garden that's riddled with honey fungus. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> but um, now, now everything we plant, you know, I, I've read about these, and I'm quite interested in these mycorrhizas. Mm. And we we plant everything with mycorrhiza because it won't cure honey fungus, but um, mm. apparently it competes with it, and you get a. Um, a reasonable step chance of success we've only been here we're only in our third year here but um quite a lot of the planting we've done we've actually uh, really dosed the planting holes with mycorrhiza to give the plants a fighting chance and the mature trees that we had they had to go because um they were the source of the honey fungus and again there are quite a few people in this village that have got wood-burning stoves so Uh. we scored a hit We scored a hit more or less as soon as we arrived and the arborist (laughs) turned up you know and it's one of those things where one of them was a big beech tree and Mm. he said uh, well we'll need to go next door to take some of the limbs off and he he said and it's the the widow lady that i mentioned who's next door he said uh, what's your neighbor's view on this and she'd come out to see what was going on i said why don't you ask her he said oh well um we're going to take this tree down and and we'll need to get into your garden," she said. "Come in, come in. I'll make you a cup of tea." <laughs> so she was as keen to get rid of the tree as we were.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, it's good to hear you using the mycorrhizae. It's, it's a product we, we certainly yeah we've been pushing
0: for quite a few yeah, years. Yeah. The root grow. empathy, root Grow, uh, empathy group, yeah. root grow mm. is the one we yeah, like. Yeah, here, but, yeah, and it's
1: yeah. Uh, and I've got it's got a, an endorsement from the RHS as well. So it's 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 in good company. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, uh, it, you know, it's one of those things where i 'd like to do an article for amateur gardening and i 've discussed this with the editor, but i can 't get any pictures of what happens underground mm-hmm. you know it 's all right you know you read the packet and it says what the benefits are you know better access to nutrition, uh, more drought tolerance, this sort of thing, um, an element of di- disease resistance well it 's all right anybody can claim that, but i 'd like to be able to get hold of some images of what the roots look like. Mm-hmm. What the fungus looks like, as it's in, you know, one invades the roots, one just forms a sheath around the roots, and I think it would give a lot of people a lot more confidence if they could see the stuff that you get in these science books when they when you read about mycorrhiza, and then the other thing I've just been reading, which really interests me, and I don't know where I can get hold of any, but there's a fungus called Trichoderma viridae. yeah, and I know they're doing some work in New Zealand, and Certainly on the internet, one of the things that they claim is it will parasitize honey fungus. Mm. And I reckon if you can, if you can get a, a system for manufacturing that, mm. you're never going to need to work again. Because the problem with honey fungus, you know, people, it just scares people to death. But I just think if you can offer something that will at least check it and even better um, deal with it, you're on a winner.
3: Mm.
1: Okay. Well, watch this space. I think yeah. is the the key. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, yeah. So,
2: so long as I'm in for ten percent, I wish you
1: all uh, <laughs> <laughs> all, all the best. Yeah, that's great. That's that's really interesting, Steve. Um, we we like to put our expert guests on the spot, Steve. So, if you were ever stranded on that, uh, you know that virtual desert island, which plant or gardening implement would you like to be stranded with, and and maybe why?
2: Ah. Uh, Uh, well let's see I suppose it would be it would be either Peter Seabrook or Alan Titchmarsh you know we've worked with both um, Peter more than Alan and if I got the pick it would I think it would probably be Alan because he's done lots of other things as well as horticulture whereas you know much as I love Peter to bits and I'm still sorry that he's gone I think you can only talk about gardening for so long without getting fed up. To be honest, <laughs> that's
0: very good. And I mean, you've shared some brilliant tales with us so far. This podcast has been really interesting chatting to you, Steve. I've really enjoyed it. Yes, um, have you got any jokes for us?
2: Uh, no, no, I'm afraid I don't. I can't. I can't tell jokes. Sometimes I can um, turn something into a funny situation. But um, well, I'll, I, what I'll do is I'll leave you with this. Um, we went down to show, we don't go now because it's so far away, but um, there's a show down on the, uh, close to the south coast called uh, Grow South.
3: Right.
2: And um, we used to go down to that when we lived near Guildford. Peter used to arrive, and they always used to call him the late Peter Seabrook because he'd it, stop at a couple of garden centres or a nursery on the way, so he never arrived on time, <laughs> but it was still working. Yeah. Anyway, we were quite surprised because this year we... We got down there and um, we thought, oh, we'll have a coffee before we start going around the stands. And Peter and his wife were sat down and we were amazed he was actually there before us. Anyway, we got a coffee and we sat down. And you could tell something wasn't right. Peter was dabbing his tie and um, Margaret was looking quite upset and Peter was looking a bit annoyed. And I just said, oh, well, well, what's happened? And Peter said, be careful with the milk. And the milk for the coffee's you know these um, sell it in tubes quite often Mm, Uh, yeah yeah. well the thing is Margaret had opened one of those and then squeezed it and Peter had copped the (laughs) lot all down his front and he was annoyed she realised he was annoyed so she was a bit upset and this is what I mean about not being able to tell a joke Uh, because I just said well it could have been worse it could have been ketchup (laughs) Oh, God,
3: excellent. excellent. And
2: straight away, you yeah, know, yeah. it finished up with the four of us sat at this table, laughing our heads oh. off, and everybody wondering what was wrong with us. <laughs> and, you know, and afterwards Val said that was a brilliant way of actually yeah. <laughs> alleviating a really tense situation. Yeah,
1: diffusing de- it. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know,
2: it's just one of those things where, you know, doesn't matter what you look at. You know, nine out of ten times, it could always have been worse. Indeed, and yeah. I, I just honed in on that. You know.
0: Well, thank you very much for sharing that with uh, with us, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, all the tales today has been really Fantastic interesting talking chat. to yeah.
1: you. It's been so much fun. And, and Steve, how do people find out more about you? Is it through uh, the, uh, the the Sun uh, website you mentioned, or uh, what?
2: yes, it, it's it, it's www.sungardening.co.uk. <laughs> Brilliant, and. um, you know, lots of people think, "Oh, they're going to get page three girls and this sort of thing," but it's nothing to do with the sun at all, mm-hmm. apart from they gave us permission to call it sun gardening. And you're probably gathered by now that uh, I do make a living talking to people.
1: Yeah, that's that's what it's all about, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll make sure we've got links on our um, podcast right. show notes to 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 that and to, and to and to your books and such like as well. So, oh, thank you very much for your time today. It's been really really
2: interesting it's It's been great great Great. Great. thank you very much thank you i I, well thanks for asking me um you know i've really enjoyed it It, as you can probably tell the problem it's the same when i do talks to gardening clubs they find it's difficult getting me to shut up rather than get me started (laughs) you you you, you've probably found the same (laughs) not at all no it's been
1: it's been an absolute delight and thank you for your your honesty as well
2: well thanks and it's been a pleasure thank 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 you 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 thank you
1: today's show was brought to you by buckingham garden center and nurseries the show was hosted by chris day and peter brown the show was produced by peter brown and our thanks to Chilton music therapy for providing the music thanks for listening at chiltern music therapy we want
2: everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives from parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across
3: England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk